The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, December 10th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Throughout her life, most people only knew her as Sweetie. That was the name her husband gave her. That was the name that the majority of people she would interact with would know her by. But when she was born, the name that was given to her was Mississippi Wynn. And Mississippi Wynn died in 2012. What makes the passing of Mississippi Wynn distinguishing is that when she passed away in 2012, she was the fourth oldest person alive and documented on the face of the earth. She was 113 years old, almost 114. What makes that even more distinguishing in particular here in America is that Mississippi Wynn was the oldest living African-American. Mississippi Wynn was born in slave housing in Louisiana. She was born and lived her early years before the end of the Civil War, before the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. She lived up until 103 on her own without assistance long after her husband had died and after many of her children had died. At 104, her remaining relatives put her in an assisted living home. And as I was reading some of her story this week, and I had heard pieces of it before, and I, I went back and, and read more of it this week, and you can find it in different articles, and if you Google it, in different New York Times pieces and USA Today pieces, I tried to take a few minutes to sit back and imagine in some sense, not just life through her eyes, but try to imagine the dizzying pace of change that Mississippi Wind not only saw, but experienced. From her early years in slave housing in Louisiana to her remaining decade, nine and a half years actually, in assisted living where her family members would come to see her with talking computers in their hands all of the cultural transformation that would have occurred in our country even between that time. She saw it all, she experienced a great deal of it. And as I tried to imagine what she must have seen, all that she went through, all that she experienced, and the few pieces that we have documented of her reaction to it, I was taken back even more as I continued to read what sociologists would say about even our own day and our own time, and that's simply this, you and I will experience change in our lifetime that far out surpasses the pace of change that even Mrs. Wynn experienced in her own. We're going to experience change at a rate she couldn't even imagine. One sociologist, his name was Albert Toffler, he wrote a book called Future Shock. And in that book, Toffler said, our galloping technology, which I love that phrase, galloping technology, introduces change so rapidly that human beings now experience a dizzying sense of disorientation. We're rocketing society into an environment so ephemeral and so unfamiliar that it threatens millions with what he calls a massive adaptational breakdown. It's just the inability to assimilate process and rightly respond to the rate of change that we're experiencing in our world today, socially and technologically. Later in his book, 
Toffler said, where is this remorseless river of time, which every year seems to flow faster and faster, actually taking us? Thinking about what even Mrs. Wynn had seen and experienced in, in her lifetime. Many people today experience change in their world and open up their front doors every morning and begin to walk out into that world and have to wrestle deep in their heart with profound feelings of despair, of anxiety, of, of even apathy. Because even if you just narrow the slice down to Mrs. Wynn's experience on this earth up to today, every single man-made effort at creating some sort of utopia or heaven on earth has utterly failed from those who felt like the institution of slavery even in this country could bring about such a society, to socialism, to Marxism, to totalitarianism, they've all failed. And in their wake, they have what other writers have said, created an environment where humanity has lost the vision that gave meaning to human existence altogether. Albert Toffler was not a Christian sociologist but even his assessment of our day and the world in which we live, he would say this, whatever the evolutionists would say, mere survival is not enough for human beings. Pessimism about the future can literally tear the guts out of a culture. Roy Clements was writing about such a thing and he painted a picture that was so vivid for me, I wanted you to hear it. He said, you and I in the world in which we live, our day, our age, we're like sailors without a compass. We're letting the wind of our desires steer us where it will. You and I attempt to make the best of things now, regardless of where we might be heading. A cavalier enthusiasm for progress, irrespective of any clear sense of direction, is what characterizes our day. You see the picture? The trouble is that our boat is being powered by an engine of technological expertise that generates a level of propulsion inconceivable before. We love progress for the sake of progress. We don't really care where it's going or how we get there. And we find ourselves in a boat of progress that's being powered by the engine of technology that can take it faster than we could have ever imagined. And then Roy Clements made this insight. This is what caught me. He said, yet with all of that being the case, that's our world. We've lost the interest and actually having a compass and a rudder in the first place. It was said of Mississippi Wynn that, and I'm quoting from one of her great-granddaughters, one of the reasons for her longevity was that she just kind of took things as they'd come. Everyday living and everyday life. She didn't let nothing upset her, and she didn't get all hyped up by some of the things like you and I do. She simply knew that this was not the end. You see, what the sociologists keep wanting to say and they try to find different ways to make it clear for you and I, it's simply this. Our culture longs for a clear hope of the future. A clear vision of tomorrow. Not a fantasy, not a mirage, not a, not a sense of man-made utopia. They want a certain hope for what's going to happen. Friends, you and I, as God's people, the church, we have distinctly such a hope for the future to offer. We have such a vision given to us by God. We have what historical theologians call a theology of hope. 
Mrs. Wynn believed it. As we spend our time this Advent season in the book of Daniel, we'll see Daniel believed it. And it's this theology of hope that anchors the life of God's people like Mrs. Wynn and like Daniel in such a way that many actually came to believe in such a theology of hope through them. And so this morning, I'm going to attempt to do what I have felt like was impossible, but we've been able to do it at 9 and at 10, and well, we don't have anything behind us at 11, so I know I can do it. We, this morning, are going to read through together the entirety of Daniel chapter 2. I want you to hear the story, and I want you to hear it like a human. I want you to hear what's actually happening. I'm going to make some comments along the way, but then by God's grace, as we get through chapter 2, I want to help you see this theology of hope, this certainty that God gives his people that's meant to be contagious to a watching world. And as we see this theology of hope shown to us again through the life of Daniel, I want you to see again how then you and I live in response to it. It's all right here in the chapter. So I'm gonna read it, make some comments, and then try to expose those two things in the time we've got, all right? So if you've got your Bible, Daniel chapter two. It will seem fast, but I'll try to Try to help it come alive a little bit. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. Now I want you to understand that in that day and time and for centuries beyond and even in some ways now, they did not simply dismiss such troubling and crazy dreams like this. They actually took them with a level of sincerity. In that day and in that time, they actually believed that the gods were writing coded messages to them about their plans for the future. The problem was someone had to interpret those messages in the natural phenomena in which they would occur. So in these days, the days and the times of the Babylonian Empire, they were fascinated by dreams, by irregular animal births by all kinds of strange phenomena. They believed that it was in those things that gods were sending messages and someone had to interpret them. That is what Daniel was trained in for three years. How to divine such interpretations through the natural phenomena. See, it wasn't meant for the king to understand the interpretation of the dream. He employed an entire cadre of people to do that for him. So that's what he did. He called them. Look at verse three. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. That's a great way to start, right? It's your boss. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation. So these wise men, these diviners, these Chaldeans, this was the moment that they were trained for, right? They've been sitting on the bench the entire time. Coach just called them into the game. This is their moment. This is their job. They were prepared to do this, but they were not prepared to hear what the king said next. The king, verse five, he answered them and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and the interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. 
And you've been, if you've been here for a while, you've heard me say this. I truly hope that in eternity, God does something where he allows us to watch the Bible play out on a screen. I would love to see the physical response and the facial response of these wise men of Nebuchadnezzar when he told them that. Verse seven says, they answered him a second time. Let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show it the interpretation. Like maybe you just forgot for a moment, right? We're gonna be kind, we're gonna be respectful. Here's how it works, king. You gotta tell us the dream first. Then we'll help you understand what it means. But the king answered, verse eight, I know with certainty that you're just trying to gain time. You're just stalling. Because you see the word from me is firm. You know this is no empty threat. I'm going to do what I say. Your neck is on the line and you're scrambling to try to figure out how to answer this thing. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall show you. I mean, so tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Now, armchair psychologists and historians have tried to get behind what's going on here for centuries. Some have said, and most people agree, that the king knows that his wise men and his interpreters, he has some kind of doubt in the, in, the, in the real power that they possess, and he knows that as members of his court, they're only just gonna tell him what he wants to hear. You've told me forever everything I wanna know. So here's the deal, if it's real, if you can really do it, you can tell me the dream and its interpretation. In verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king, and they said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. No one has ever presumed that anyone could do what you're asking. The thing the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and he commanded that all of the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Like he had a dream. He's probably had a lot of dreams. But for whatever reason, this dream has troubled him like no other dream has troubled him before. And at the end of the day, he is calling for the heads of every single wise man, diviner, enchanter, Chaldean in his entire empire. Something has disturbed him so greatly about this dream that it's causing him to expose the reality of what he's beginning to learn about his own heart. Nebuchadnezzar is being faced with the reality of his own mortality. He, better than anyone else in the entire story, encompasses what Nietzsche would come to say later, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? He had everything the greatest and largest empire on the face of the earth, all the power, all the prestige, all the money. And he was riddled with tremendous anxiety. And one thing you begin to see as you work your way through the story and listen to the overarching message of God to his people through the chapter is simply this. This kind of troubling anxiety is the fruit of a faulty sense of hope. When your hope for tomorrow is based solely on what you can see in front of you today, 
When tomorrow is built upon what you can accomplish, what you can amass, the security you can get for yourself, the name that you can make for yourself, the prestige you can gather for yourself today, you can never be free from this kind of deep-seated anxiety and insecurity. The more you have, the more anxious you are about keeping it. The less you have, the more anxious you become until you have more. And then you find yourself over here on this wheel. Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the future, the horizon of his hope, was only what he could see and amass for himself. And his dream is beginning to expose him and trouble him. He had everything you could ever want in the world except peace. And so verse 13, the story picks up. His decree goes out. The wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them, which reminds you that Daniel was one of these wise men. This is what he was trained to do. He was one of the diviners, one of the Chaldeans, one of the wise men of the empire. He was trained to try to detect the messages from the gods in the natural phenomena of the day. And what I want you to see here and just note it for a moment is that here at the end of verse 13, the primary message of the book is being presented. The primary question is being asked. The primary stage that all of this is playing on is being exposed. And that's simply this. Where is true wisdom found and who has access to it? Now there are all kinds of other things that capture our attention in this chapter. But this is the primary answer and the primary message. And we'll come back to it as we make our way through it. Verse 14, Daniel replied, with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's, ca king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king, appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now again, read it like a human, slow down. The king had just accused all of his diviners of wanting more time to stall and get the answer and he wouldn't give it to them, right? Off with your heads. But he gives Daniel time. The rest of them don't get time. But he gives Daniel time. And so with his request granted, watch Daniel's response. Then Daniel went to his house and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. We met them last week. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel grabs his boys and said, go plead to God for mercy. You see, the stage is set, the characters are coming out, the biggest issues are being, are being made known. The wise men of Babylon claim that the gods are inaccessible to man. Daniel is going to show again and prove that while the one true God doesn't reside in Babylon, he wasn't inaccessible. And not only is he not inaccessible, he's a revealer of things. So verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven and Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. God alone, Daniel says, has wisdom and power. Both are his to give and take. And I love that as you read this, take time this week to open it up in your Bible. The writer of Daniel chapter two, in a literary way, specifically puts this prayer of response, of worship from Daniel to God when God shows him this dream and interpretation in a way that the Hebrew writers would write out poetry. Because what that does on the page, it literally spreads it out and brings it to the middle. He, in a literary way, constructed this entire chapter to make you slow down. Have you noticed how fast the story has gone? The expectation is Daniel and his boys plead to God for mercy that God may show them what they need so they don't get killed with everybody else. God gives them the vision they need and the expectation is that he then runs to the king to tell him, right? But that's not what happens. The writer literally slows you down. It's as though in the structure, he's pushing you to slow down and worship, to slow down and praise. It's fascinating as you begin to read it. But the story keeps going. Verse 24, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Now don't go too fast. Daniel didn't throw the Babylonian pagan wise men under the bus, did he? No, he acted in the best interest of them. It's kind of what we heard a little bit last week from Jeremiah 20, 29, what God had told his people to do, to seek the welfare of the people and the place where I've placed you. Daniel could have thrown them under the bus, but he didn't. He acted in their interest and well-being. And so verse 25, Arioch brought Daniel in before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king. And he said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. That takes some nerve. Face to face, eye to eye with Nebuchadnezzar. What you've asked can't be done. Again, vindicating the response of his colleagues. But he's not done. What you've asked, none of these men can do. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Boldness of Daniel. There is a God who knows. And he's shown you. Your dream and the visions of your head as you laid in bed are these. And I love this. Again, read it like a human. What are you expecting to come next? The dream, right? And the interpretation. But he knows he's got an audience with Nebuchadnezzar. He's not gonna let it go quite that quick. It's kind of like Ali playing rope-a-dope with somebody. He's got him on the edge. Tell me the dream. Here's the interpretation. Uh, hold on, one more thing. Before we get there, 
To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. When I tell you this, don't be confused. It wasn't that three-year education you gave me in divination that allowed me to do this. Don't be confused. It's, it's not all the stuff that you've, that you've brought to yourself and you've put me through. It's not anything that I had born in me that's different than anybody else. It's not anything in me or that you have given me that has enabled me to tell you this dream and its interpretation. No, it's coming to you in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your own mind. That you may realize that the one true God, the revealer of mysteries, he knows you better than you even know yourself. And here's the dream, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Now, can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar at this point, right? That makes sense to me. That's not hard for you to understand. I get that part. Now, probably like right over his head was everything Daniel had actually said, that the God of heaven had given him all those things. But right now, all Nebuchadnezzar can hear is that you're the head of gold. And all wisdom, power, might, and dominion over all things, even the animals, it belongs to you, right? He's not paying attention to where it comes from. But then Daniel says something, and I wonder, again, I want to see Nebuchadnezzar's face one day, and I want to see it. He says something in verse 39, and I wonder how Nebuchadnezzar responded to it in heart or even physically. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And then there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. But I know you're the head of cold. And right now, all power, all might, all dominion has been given to you. You've got it all. No one can compare to you. Your empire has no rivals. But it's not going to last. There's, there's going to come another after you. I wonder how he heard that. I wonder if it was beginning to sink in or if he was still stuck on the head of gold. Another is going to come, then another, and then another. And like iron that crushes, this fourth one shall break and crush all things. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly clay, and part, or partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. 
as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation, sure. Now here's where we need to talk. For centuries... The gap in detail between the head of gold being the kingdom of Babylon and the second empire and the third empire and the fourth empire not being quite so explicitly clear in the Bible here has caused scholars and students of the Bible to get themselves all stirred up in some kind of crazy tizzy over trying to figure out exactly what empires, what kings, and what times God's talking about through this dream. And there have been, over history, two primary interpretations, okay? The first one is what scholars call the Greek interpretation, which simply means that when you get down to that fourth empire, they're talking about the Greek empire. Then there's another interpretation. It's called the Roman, the Roman interpretation. Their interpretation says when you get down to that fourth empire, it's talking about the Roman empire. Here's what I want you to understand. When it comes to understanding the main message of the dream and its interpretation for Nebuchadnezzar, for God's people in exile in Daniel's day, and for God's people now, those details are inconsequential. Do you hear me? They're inconsequential to the main message. You can go to chapter seven and chapter eight and try to figure out which horn or which beast matches which king and which empire. It's inconsequential to the main message of what's going on right here. And if you don't want to hear me say that, I want you to listen to someone else. Tremper Longman, one of the best Old Testament scholars alive today. He said in Daniel chapter two, talking about this dream, though it starts in the concrete present, that's the gold head being Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It's a wrong strategy to proceed through history and try to associate different stages of the statue with particular empires. The vision that God gave intends to communicate something far more general, but far more grand. And that's simply this, that God is sovereign, he is in control, despite any and all present conditions. You see, the main point of the dream and the interpretation was that Nebuchadnezzar would begin to know, God's people in exile would begin to go know, and God's people throughout history who are still in exile today, like you and I, strangers in a strange land, would continue to know that there is a God who knows all things and orders all of history until the day he sets up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That's the main message of the dream and the interpretation. A kingdom that he will establish, verse 44 says, that will be indestructible, final, overwhelming, and even supernatural. See, the main message that Nebuchadnezzar was meant to hear, the main message that God's people, even in Daniel's day, should hear and process and respond to, the same thing you and I should hear and respond to is that human kingdoms, no matter what their name, what their time, or what their place, including the kingdom you try to establish for yourself. 
No human kingdom, no matter how impressive it may look, will ultimately last. All human kingdoms will ultimately be destroyed by the everlasting kingdom of God. That's the main point of the dream and the interpretation. Kingdoms and empires, then and now, and next year, and the year after that, and the decade and the century beyond, if the Lord tarries, they are in the hand of the good and sovereign God. That's the point. So if that's the point, what does that mean for God's people in exile then and God's people like us in exile now, strangers in a strange land? It means that when you and I walk out of our front doors and experience that sense of despair or frustration or anger or even apathy in relation to what's going on in our world, when disappointment begins to creep up and overtake our heart, when we read about the economy and we begin to get scared, when we read about North Korean politics and we begin to get worried, when we read about polar ice caps and we don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow, what it means is that you and I are meant to take all of that frustration, all of that disappointment, all of that anxiety, all of that anger and place it squarely at the feet of the one true God and King. That's where all of that stuff belongs. But it also means for God's people in exile then and God's people even today, that all of our hope, all of our hope is found in him. Because no human leader, no human kingdom, even the kingdom of your own desire that you try to set up, no human kingdom can rival or topple his kingdom. This is what theologians have called throughout history the Christian theology of hope. It's this hope that would animate and sustain God's people in exile in Daniel's day. It's this hope that would animate and sustain God's people even today. It means if this is true, and it is, part of the message to God's people then and now is that you and I are not meant to get swayed by the kingdoms of this world. We're not meant for our hearts to be awed by all the things the kingdoms of this world hold out. You and I, because of this hope, we don't have to be caught in the trappings of the world in which we live because the kingdom of which God has made us citizens exposes the emptiness and the futility of all the kingdoms that man tries to make and establish for himself. We don't have to get caught in the trappings. We don't have to get awed by the power because by his grace, we're members of an entirely different kingdom. One that has no rival and has no end. And as this hope begins to sustain and begins to steady and begins to anchor, anchor, you and I can live today and tomorrow and the next day without being overly impressed by political power. We don't have to be awed and impressed by military might, nor do we have to be afraid of it. Why? Because Daniel chapter two reminds us it's all fleeting. It's all temporary. We're a member of a kingdom whose king sets up and removes empires. We don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to be awed by it. Just like Jesus would say in his own day, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. That's what God told Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel. 
He missed it in the first part of the interpretation. Yeah, you've got all glory, all might. You rule over all the beasts, over all the people that walk on the face of the earth. But the God of heaven gave it to you. You have nothing apart from what he gives you. Now, I want you to think about it like a human for a minute and put yourself back in the position of God's people in exile then who would have heard the story of Daniel read to them over and over and talked to them over and over. They would have heard this dream, heard this interpretation. They would have understood the bigger picture of its meaning that no human kingdom can stand in the presence of the kingdom that God is going to establish, that God is going to destroy all human kingdoms and establish his kingdom that will know no end. And I want you to imagine the messianic hope and ideas that would have grown up in their heart and in their mind over centuries waiting for what God had said here and what he had promised. I want you to imagine the the shape and the form that these expectations would have taken, the the empire-smashing hope they would have had. I want you to imagine it, and then I want you to ask yourself, is it any wonder that centuries later, very few people would notice the lowly birth of a baby boy in a barn to a lowly couple outside a lowly city in the Roman Empire. Is anyone in here surprised that God's people then were slow to recognize the echoes of his kingdom being at hand? Their expectations had become something entirely different. They weren't expecting an itinerant teacher wandering around the region of Galilee with a ragamuffin group of disciples following him. When he told stories of God's kingdom being present in him and through him, when he told stories of God's kingdom breaking in just as God had promised, he didn't tell stories of Caesar smashing empires. He told stories of itty bitty mustard seeds, of leaven that would have to be worked into dough and over a slow process of time begin to do the work that it was meant to do. Their expectations of God's kingdom had become something that wasn't connected to what God had promised. God's kingdom was going to work differently than they had expected. I love in verse 11, when the wise men of the day and the Chaldeans, they say the thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. See, on this side of the cross, we get to read that in a different way. Because we know that the good news of the gospel, the good news of God's kingdom is the good news of an altogether different God. I love that we're reading the book of Daniel and going through it in the season of Advent leading up to Christmas. This time of hope and expectation and longing for the promise of God to be fulfilled. For the Old Testament saints for the day that God would begin to fulfill that process in the incarnation. God becoming man, taking up his residence with us. He does indeed dwell with flesh. And for us on this side of eternity going, he has established that kingdom already. And it is continuing to grow. The everlasting kingdom of God broke in with Jesus. He shattered the power of the reigning prince. In his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he declared that all authority was his. And that God's promised earth-filling expansion. That stone that wasn't cut by human hands 
that kingdom that God would establish that would destroy all human kingdoms would grow and it would expand to fill the entirety of the earth. God's kingdom expansion plan was present in him. But it was going to be a slow process of which his people, you and I even now, are a part of until he returns. One commentator, her name is Wendy Wider. She wrote on the book of Daniel, and I love how she began to draw this point to a close. She said, just as Jesus would teach that many were gonna stumble over this supernatural stone because it wasn't what they were expected. And when they stumbled over this supernatural stone, Jesus said they would be crushed by it. But others, others would put their faith entirely in this supernatural stone. The supernatural stone we would come to know as the living stone, the cornerstone, and they themselves, by the grace of God, would become living stones in a spiritual house that will one day fill the earth. Until that day, how do God's people live now as strangers in a strange land, yet anchored with the certainty, the anticipation, and the excitement and the certainty of his coming kingdom? Well, Peter says that we're to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they would see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. You see, what Daniel chapter two is telling us, one, it's grounding us in this theology of hope, that it doesn't do us good. It doesn't stabilize our hearts. It doesn't bring us joy to place too much hope in our current political processes. And at the same time, it doesn't do us good and it doesn't, doesn't expand or reflect the glory of God to grow complacent and apathetic in light of his sovereignty. I mean, that was the error we looked at last week that some of the Israelites were making. They found themselves in exile as strangers in the land. And they said, you know what? Let's stay over here. We're gonna keep Babylon and the rest of that place at arm's distance. We're gonna make sure we're okay, get all of our traditions, all of our cultures, and all of our stuff square right here because one day God's going to return. And all those kingdoms, they're gonna be brought down and exposed for what they are. So just let them burn. We'll take care of ourselves. And if you remember last week, we talked about how God judged that approach to the world in which he had placed them. Rather, he said through his prophet Jeremiah, no, you're in the place where I have placed you. And what I've called you to do is to seek the well-being and the welfare of the people in the place where I've placed you, to pray for them, to seek their peace, because it's in their well-being that you'll find your well-being. And what you see in Daniel chapter two is that this theology of hope anchored, so anchored God's people, this is the very thing that Daniel continued to do. You see, you see in verses 48 and 49 that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they did not get this understanding of, of God's kingdom coming and smashing the empires of the world and go, you know what? Let's just stay over here. Let's protect ourselves. Let's protect our people. Let's insulate ourselves over here. Let Babylon stay over there because God's gonna destroy them anyway. No, you find in verse 48 and 49, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego living out the very thing God called his people to in Jeremiah 29. The king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over all the affairs of the province of Babylon. And Daniel remained at the king's court. 
Friends, I want you to see something. There is such a theology of hope, such a certainty that God gives his people. It's meant to shape the affections of our hearts and the actions of our lives. But I don't want you to miss something. The writer of the book of Daniel, in particular in chapter two, he writes this chapter in such a way that if you were reading it in Hebrew, listen, I can't just pick it up and read it in Hebrew, all right? So don't just think I'm, I can't do that. But if you were able to read it in Hebrew, you would notice in the writing, the structure of it was written in such a way that you weren't meant to get caught up on this whole dream and the interpretation. That wasn't the main point. Yes, we get there the theology of hope that is ours in the everlasting kingdom of God and God as the sovereign king over all things. But the main point is how in the midst of the world that we live with such certainty, how do we live right here, right now, knowing that? That's the point of the book. That's the point of the chapter. What's true wisdom in light of this? Where is it found and who has access to it? You see, it's going to require you and I living ordinary lives of faithfulness to the glory of God in such a time. And to be able to do that, we're going to need a wisdom, or as the writer of Daniel will say, a taste that only God can give. Watch this as we close this chapter out. Chapter two, verse 14. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. He replied to his situation, and he replied to the chief with prudence and discretion. Some of your translations will say prudence and tact, or tact and wisdom, or wisdom and prudence. All of it is an effort in translation to make sense and communicate what's behind a particular word there in Hebrew. And the word there in Hebrew that it's trying to translate and give you some idea of its weight is a word that actually talks about someone having a cultivated sense of taste. And to make sense of it in our day, it's something like this. You've all heard about or you may even know people who over a a number of years and and time and dedication have been able to cultivate the palates of their mouth to be able to taste and distinguish the most minute differences, the most minute details in glasses of wine or cups of tea. They can smell it, they can taste it, and they can tell you, where in the world the grapes came from, what year they probably were harvested, what kind of barrel they were aged in or stored in, what year it was probably bottled, what guy probably touched it last, all those kinds of things, simply from sniffing it and tasting it. But it took years of cultivating that kind of distinguished palate that's able to to come up with all those different nuances and details about a tea or a wine, right? The word trying to be translated here in verse 14, and some say wisdom, some say tact, some say prudence, is this idea of taste. That real biblical wisdom is a highly developed sense of God's ways that's learned through ordinary faithfulness to God's word and intimacy with him. Sinclair Ferguson will say this kind of wisdom is a sensitive awareness of the kind of behavior that's appropriate to the child of God in different circumstances. It doesn't necessarily come with age, but with understanding the Lord and his ways. Some will live long lives and lack it. Others will develop it while they're young. And what Daniel chapter two is reminding us is that an increasing refinement of spiritual taste, the capacity to distinguish between the ways of God in different circumstances and situations is what is meant to mark God's people in a strange land because it's the cultivation of this wisdom or this taste that shapes our affections and our actions. You see it in the way Daniel responds 
to the different circumstances in his life, and we'll see it throughout his entire story. Beginning to understand wisdom this way will change the way you read books of the Bible like the book of Proverbs. When you begin to see that wisdom in the Bible is not primarily a group of lessons that you have to learn or collected pieces of information you have to assimilate, but that true biblical wisdom is ultimately a relationship that you're meant to enjoy, it will change how you read it all. You see, what is wisdom? And where is it found? Well, even Nebuchadnezzar can answer that question. Verse 47, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, said to Daniel, truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. The one true God who has established his everlasting, indestructible, eternal kingdom is the source of true wisdom, which means, again, wisdom is not simply information we get to gather. It's a relationship we get to enjoy. It's not the result of a specific kind of education, but it comes from a relationship with the one true God who made all of the rules and continues to rule over all things. One writer will say, we live in a troubled and confusing world, but we live in this world in relationship to Christ. And we gain our wisdom, that taste, in conversation with him through prayer, through reading his word. This wisdom, this taste, is a relationship that produces a mindset, a way of looking at the world. Indeed, it helps us to look at life through the eyes of Christ. Friends, that's why we continue to talk about ordinary faithfulness with a long-term view. It's the ordinary faithfulness of God's people that God uses by his spirit to cultivate a spiritual taste, wisdom, the necessary trait of God's people to not just survive in a strange land, but to thrive in the place where God has put us for his glory, our joy, and the good of all the people around us. And we're reminded every single week that it's the good news of the gospel that has made all of this possible. It is God's grace and mercy to us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son that has made a way for our relationship with him to be renewed for a relationship with the source of true wisdom to be had. By grace, through faith, in Christ. You need to understand this. The mind, the mind of the one true God is available to us. By grace, through faith, in Jesus, God gives us his very spirit that joins us to the one, the Bible says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's his spirit that convicts us of his truth and then empowers us to live the countercultural reality of his wisdom in a strange land. Throughout the book, Wendy Wider will say, God is going to help us to see that he is the one who will raise up kings. He's the one who will take them down. He is the one who will confound the wise in our day. He's the one who's going to give wisdom spiritual taste to his faithful servants. He's gonna share his wisdom, his power, his dominion, and even his glory with his people. And he will help call us to account for what we do with it. But make no mistake, she said, as you read the book of Daniel, and in particular Daniel chapter two, God's kingdom alone is eternal, and to him belong all power, dominion, and glory. You see, this final sense of assurance of the kingdom of God is 
is meant to cultivate in us a, a contagious certainty. You and I walk out of our door every day following a God who knows all things. Even as he said through Daniel, things hidden in the darkness, things you don't even know that you don't know. But because of this, you and I can continue to hope and long with expectation and joy as exiles in a strange land and we can do it without fear because by his grace we can know him just as we're known by him and by his grace and the work of his spirit we can cultivate the spiritual taste necessary to not just survive that's not enough but to thrive for his glory our joy and the good of those in the place where he's placed us you serve an all sovereign all gracious all knowing and all giving God and friends that changes everything I'm going to pray for us and and then we're going to respond this morning as we do each week and take a moment to reflect on God's word to deal with him to let him deal with our hearts we'll make much of him the way Daniel did we'll praise him with our mouths and we'll remember the certainty of his grace and the certainty of his kingdom by receiving communion together, remembering the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And then we'll be sent out from here to the place where he has called us as his people, that through us, the contagious certainty of his mercy and of his triumph will draw a watching world to him. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond. Father, thank you this morning for your word that reminds us of the hope that is ours because of your grace. Lord, let us find comfort and peace and rest in your sovereignty, in your mercy, in your wisdom, and in your delight to share yourself with us. God, help us to be people who live with a cultivate of the heart that desires to, to cultivate this contagious wisdom, the holiness, this taste that allows us to live lives reflecting a different sense of, of affection and allegiance before a watching world that many might come to know you, that we would taste the joy that comes from throwing ourselves wholly upon you and others would come to know the same joy and peace as well. We ask that you would do that in our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.